Father, we give you thanks for this country. We give you thanks for your providence. We give you thanks for the things that you have put in place before you uh, put into uh, William Bradford's heart, as well as everybody else's heart to come here. Lord, this place has always been here because you created it. And we thank you, Lord, for what has uh, come about. Uh, You allowed us to establish this country. Lord, we have drifted far uh, from where you intended us to be. But Lord, we thank you that you are still in charge. You're still in control. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to have celebrated uh, Thanksgiving. So many of your people bowed the knee. So many of your people gave you thanks on that day. So, Lord, I pray that today that you would help us to continue giving thanks because you alone are worthy. Open up our minds and our hearts to your word now as we open it up. And we ask God that you help us to take it in and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but um, when I saw this video, the true story of Thanksgiving, I was surprised by a number of things. And since it was such an educational experience for me, I thought I would just share it with you. Maybe because I didn't pay attention or because the public school curriculum back in Indiana in the 1960s didn't teach it, the point is I was ignorant of these things. My first surprise was that the pilgrims did not come to the new world to escape religious persecution. See, they had already escaped it by going to Holland uh, more than a decade prior to that. According to some of the supporting documents regarding this Prager University video, the pilgrims, the Puritans, whose sole desire was to be absolutely faithful to the Lord, they left Holland to go to the New World for two reasons. First and foremost, the Dutch culture was too permissive, they believed, and it was affecting their kids. You know, William Bradford, in his writings, commented on the, quote, great licentiousness of the youth in Holland and lamented evil examples and manifold temptations of the place. According to Bradford's nephew, Nathaniel Morton, the Dutch parents gave their children too much freedom. But the separatist parents could not give their own children due correction without reproof or reproach from their neighbors. Now, some things never change, right? Peer pressure really is hard to overcome. Second reason why the pilgrims left Holland was because it was extremely difficult to make ends meet. Very long days, sun up to sundown, six days a week. That was their lot in life. The work that most pilgrims did was in the very taxing textile industry. According to the author of one of the articles, the life of great labor and hard fare, as Bradford described things, was a threat to the church. Few from England would want to join them simply because of the hardships of everyday life in Holland, even though there was religious freedom there. Bradford also saw how extreme hard work made one old very quickly because it was extremely difficult. Bradford understood that the people in his community weren't getting any younger as well because they had been there for at least 10 years. Hunger and a lack of necessities became the pilgrims' taskmasters. So for Bradford and the rest of the pilgrims, they saw the danger of the great temptation to turn away from the Lord, not because of persecution, but as Jesus taught in the parable of the soils, that their soil would become thorny. And the things of this world would engulf them, leaving them overly concerned to merely survive, and then even more importantly, that their kids would be unduly influenced by the evil 
ways of their peers. Second thing I saw in this video that surprised me was how the Lord in his sovereignty prepared Squanto to help the pilgrims. Now, I didn't know anything about Squanto until I began preparing for this. I heard the name, but I didn't know anything about him. But Squanto's life was anything but pleasant. You know, can you imagine? Kidnapped as a youth, only to be sold as a slave. Bought by a monk who taught Squanto the Christian faith and then set free only to return back to his village to the horror of seeing all of his family members have died due to a pandemic. By the way, some people believe it was smallpox, but it was not the pilgrims who brought the disease, contrary to the woke opinion. The village was deserted by the time the pilgrims arrived. I find it amazing, though, that through his experiences, Squanto came on the scene at just the right time, fluent in English, to help the pilgrims. What a coinkydink, you think? But what this tells me is that in regards to Squanto is that the Lord wastes nothing when it comes to the body of Christ. Would you agree? The pilgrims were in need of a young man like Squanto to help them. He was at least sympathetic to the Christian cause and Christianity and the gospel, if not already a genuine follower of Christ by the time he met the pilgrims. And the pilgrims really needed to see a brother or somebody at least sympathetic to Christianity when they uh, were there and starting to uh, develop their lives there on, on the new world. And as we know, though, about half the pilgrims died during the many months they were getting established in the new world. And to make matters a little bit more difficult, they were economically hamstrung from the get-go. We might not think along those lines, but that was a real thing. See, someone had to foot the bill for the pilgrims to make it across and to get established in the new world. And the answer was venture capitalists. There's money everywhere, isn't there? Got to follow that money. See, there was a communal agreement, though, that the pilgrims made, or at least Bradford did, with the venture capitalists. And that communal agreement was that there would be no private property at all. Kind of like a forerunner to the, to the socialistic mindset. And that everything that was produced there, it would go into a common pool, and everyone would share equally. But this proved disastrous. And only by giving the people their own plot of land did production increase, and they were able then to provide more food for themselves, as well as even that first Thanksgiving. And so, again, socialism fails at every time, at every place it's tried. Now, there's much we can learn about the pilgrims and the backstory of what eventually became known as the first Thanksgiving. But I'm sure you're not here to recount a lesson of history even though much of the history has been skewed. See, for really, the pilgrims were the fathers of our country. In search of a place, to quote Michael Medved, to build an ideal Christian commonwealth. That was their idea. That was their passion. That was their mindset, to come here to make this a, it's just us, right, Christian nation. The beginnings of our country were not mammon-centric. It had little to do with economics, but it was centered on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this is what makes our Thanksgiving Holy Day special. It's to the Lord that we give thanks for his infinite blessings. Amen? Now fast forward a couple hundred years. The year is 1863. 
in the height of the Civil War, Lincoln made a a public proclamation beginning this way. The year that is drawing to a close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. (laughs) Wait, really? Right in the middle of a war where every casualty was American? Right in the middle where every soldier who died was an American that they had to bury? See, Lincoln, this man of God, saw the Lord's sovereignty in the midst of war and death. See, Lincoln understood this country was established on the foundation of God's ways and his truth. And every person owed the creator of heaven and earth to include every U.S. citizen a profound debt of thanks for all his material and spiritual blessing. And it is in the crucible of hardship where we find the most important truth. A big idea of our message for today and the foundation of our Thanksgiving Holy Day, real heartfelt Thanksgiving is forged in the fires of adversity. Now, whether it was the pilgrims traveling a dangerous Atlantic waters, anticipating forming a Christ-centered commonwealth, or a thoroughly divided nation, even more divided than we are now, by the way, literally at each other's throats, adversity causes a true Christian to give thanks to the one who saved him or her. Indeed, Thanksgiving is a sign of life for the Christian. Paul, writing to his friends in Rome from Corinth, he would look around at the pagan practices and realize that one of the reasons for the wickedness that surrounded him and the fledgling church in that city is found in Romans 1, 18 and 21. So if you want to turn there, you can, or just read off of your manuscript. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice one of the last bricks to be placed in the heart before it goes dark. Failure to give the Lord thanks. But why is this important? Why is it important for us to give thanks to the Lord? Let me see if I can paint a picture. Say you're at Virginia Beach. It's nice. Midsummer, and you're enjoying your friends with your friends all day at the beach. And then all of a sudden, you hear someone call for help. She's drowning, and you swim out to her. She's unconscious, and you apply all the rescue techniques. And lo and behold, she comes back. She sits up. She looks at you, and then gets up and walks away. And you're standing there. What's going on in your heart? Hey, can I even get your name? Really? Won't even give me a thank you? Come on, serious? See, God says that one of the signs of spiritual life is that we give thanks. Failure to do so leads to a hardened heart. You know, and I find it instructive that on at least four 
separate occasions, the Lord Jesus gave thanks to the Father. And if Jesus thought it important enough to give thanks to the Father, how much more important is it for us to give thanks to him? You know, after the Lord died and rose again and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit came upon the believers at the Feast of Pentecost. And on that day, about 3,000 people were reconciled to King Jesus. You reconciled to King Jesus? And through a series of events, the martyrdom of Stephen being one of them, the church scattered, and they went everywhere proclaiming the good news. They suffered hardship as followers of Christ, but their testimony was vibrant. And as the influence of Christians went far and wide, it eventually reached Antioch, a city about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. In Antioch, we find an interesting scenario. The pagans gave the followers of Christ living there a nickname, Christian. See, followers of Christ so talked and acted like the Lord that the non-Christians called them Christians, little Christs. It wasn't a term of endearment. It was of scorn. It was of hatred. It was of ridicule. You know, cancel culture didn't begin in the 21st century. But rare were the locations for churches to get started where new followers of Jesus did not suffer for their faith in Christ. Let me give you a a few places as listed in Scripture. One is the region of Macedonia. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 2 through 5, here's what he writes about them. He says, in a severe test of affliction, the Macedonian churches, in an abundance of joy, though, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And by this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then us by the will of God. The writer of the Hebrews reminds his readers and hearers about their suffering for Christ in Hebrews 10, 32, and 33. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed with reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Others suffered mockings and floggings. You know what that is, don't you? Cat and nine tails. The same instrument is used on Jesus. Floggings for being a Christian. And even chains and imprisonment. They were suffering. No wonder they were tempted to go back. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews said, don't go back. Don't go back to the old Jewish ways. Your way is Christ's way. Paul himself suffered greatly. We know this, don't we? We remember his resume in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. And so I'm going to give you just a couple of his brand marks for Jesus. He said, five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, 
often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure of me on my anxiety, of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul suffered greatly for being a Christian. In Philippians 1.29, Paul writes to his dear friends from a location in Rome because he was waiting under house arrest to gain a hearing from the Nero, from the Caesar, whether he should keep his head or not. In his letter, Paul reminds his dear friends in Philippi, it is actually the Lord's will to suffer for the sake of Christ. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul took the gospel to a city called Thessalonica. And here's his vivid memory of these dear believers as found in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. But here, the Thessalonian Christians experienced a great deal of, of affliction for following Christ from day one. From the very beginning, when Paul presented the gospel to them, they experienced affliction. They had great enemies because of the gospel. And he continues to bring up their affliction in this letter. He does it again in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15. So skip down there a minute. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed mankind. Now, why would that be? Why would Paul, again, remind them of the affliction, of the suffering? Well, it's kind of difficult to say because we weren't there. You know, when we do Bible study, we have to find out what Paul meant versus what it means. But one possible reason is that Paul reminds them, perhaps, in essence, that this is what you guys signed up for. You signed up to suffer. But to follow Christ is so worth it, isn't it? See, the Lord Jesus told his disciples that they would suffer hardship for following him. And perhaps the Thessalonians' constant harassment by the non-Christians was beginning to wear on them. Some of you know what this is like. Perhaps one of the reasons Paul may have written this letter was to encourage them to hang tough. And now we come to one of Paul's statements that he wrote to the Thessalonians that I'm convinced that we often fail to understand. And because we fail to understand it, we fail to apply it. We fail to obey. And that's found in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. So turn over there, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Very familiar passage. Very familiar verse. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks, all circumstances. Hmm. So let's break this down a little bit so we can see what, what it is, to understand it with the goal of applying it. First, let's see what it's not saying. Paul is not telling us that everything that happens to us is God's will. How do we know this? Let me give you just one reason among many why that's true. When someone sins against you or someone sins against me, is that ever God's will? No, it's never God's will that someone sins against somebody else. If he says, give thanks in all circumstances and all things, 
What are we talking about here? This verse does say in regards to the scope of the whole thing. He says, we are to give thanks whatever the circumstances are in our lives. And so if not every circumstance comes our way as is God's will, what is going on here? Well, the short answer is, it is God's will that we give thanks. Full stop. We give thanks because giving thanks is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus, regardless of what comes our way. So let's read this verse here with the correct idea and see how it sounds. Give thanks in all circumstances for this, as in giving thanks to him, is God's will for you in Christ. That's what he's saying. And so now let's read this all-important verse in the context of the surrounding truth statements that Paul said here, lest we read our own ideas into it, beginning at 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 and 22. See too that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That's the context surrounding this verse. See how it works? We don't pay back others evil for evil. You know, we don't say, you know what? I don't get mad. I get even. No, we don't do that. We rejoice always. That's a command, by the way. We pray without ceasing. That too is a command. We give thanks in all things for giving thanks is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Let's not quench the Spirit or put out the Spirit's fire. We don't take lightly the truth of the Lord referred here as prophecies. And we're to test everything. We're to hold fast to what is good. We abstain from every form of evil. And again, let's not forget the social context and the spiritual context of the Thessalonian Christians. Much affliction and hardship just because they were Christians. Okay, so we see the command, don't we? Give thanks for giving thanks is the Lord's will for our lives. But why should we give thanks to the Lord? There's two reasons. There's many more reasons, but i just give two. First, we are giving thanks to a person, not to circumstances, not to events. Giving thanks to the Lord means that we look up to him with childlike faith, trusting him that whatever comes our way, we acknowledge his goodness in our lives. But when difficult circumstances come, it's awfully difficult to give the Lord thanks, isn't it? As though he either allows it or directly causes our hard times to come. I don't even have to ask this question because it's so obvious. But how many of us have experienced devastating things in our lives? Over the course of our lives, I see ands everywhere. And how many of us are experiencing difficult circumstances right now and even have for a long time? Is there a rhyme or a reason for our suffering as Christians? And if so, what is it? Romans 8, 28 and 29. Familiar verses, once again, they're almost cliche, isn't it? They're almost trite. Let's hear them again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called 
according to his purpose. What's the purpose? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, without getting into the theology of predestination or foreknowledge, let's put these things aside. Let's see the purpose for everything that the Lord directs or allows to come into our lives, good or bad. What is it? So that when he is finished with us, we will look just like Jesus. It's a great thing, isn't it? But it's painful, isn't it? Stories told of a conversation between an awestruck lover of art and a sculptor. The art lover asked him, sir, how is it that you can take a piece of rock and you can create such amazing works of art? Without missing a beat, the sculptor says, simple, really. I just chisel away everything that's supposed to be there. My friends, the Lord is the master sculptor. There's not one thing that comes our way that is not for your benefit and mine so that we will look just like the Lord when he's finished with us. We may go through excruciating circumstances, but it's all for his glory and our good. What would have happened if Squanto had not been taken as a slave? Set free, learned English, and then returned when he did, when he came to the pilgrims? Number one, he probably would have been dead if he hadn't been taken as a slave, because he probably would have died from the pandemic in the village. Squanto's circumstances were dire. And remember who enslaved him. Most likely was someone from England. And where were the pilgrims originally from? England. See, Squanto could have gone on a rampage when he encountered the pilgrims. And though it was some of the worst circumstances he could have ever been in, Squanto learned about Jesus from his slave master, who eventually set him free. And we think there's nothing good about slavery, and there isn't. But God used it in Squanto's life. Isn't that true? And because the Lord's working in Squanto's life, in some measure, America, at least as we used to know America, was born. Truly, the Lord wastes nothing in our lives. Second reason we can give thanks to the Lord is, as the Lord's disciples, as those who are reconciled to him, the worst thing that could ever happen to us won't. Because for any human being, what is the worst thing that could happen to that person? They could die and go to hell. But because we're in Christ, for all of us who are in Christ, that will never happen to us. Isn't that true? Something we can say hallelujah about. Amen? See, every non-Christian will experience hell, but followers of Jesus won't. We have the Lord's promise. John 14, 19, as he was sharing with his disciples. He says, because I live, you will live also. And so regardless of what happens to us, hell will not be our destiny. And it's all because of Jesus. As I wrap up our message today, the word for today is thanksgiving. We celebrated Thanksgiving this past Thursday, and Lord willing, we will celebrate another one in November 2023. But some of us, May not. With some families, there may be an empty chair or another empty chair. Or maybe an empty chair 
for the first time. With some of us, there may be broken relationships, family members, lifelong friends. Health concerns may increase and intensify. Financial issues, national world economies, more unjustice, diabolical rules and regulations, etc., etc., ad nauseum. But let's take to heart the words of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples right before he experienced his torture, his death, his resurrection. Here's what he says to them in John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. My brothers and sisters, this life is not all there is. Soon this life will be over, and Jesus will come to us and for us, and we will be with him forever. And so, yes, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is doable, but it's doable as we keep our eyes firmly fixed on him and on the hope that is ours in Christ. And so let's recite this verse together right before we pray. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Remember our big idea, real, heartfelt, Thanksgiving to the Lord is forged in the fires of adversity. Let's pray. Lord, when you created the world, you knew there was going to be sin. You knew there was going to be rebellion. You knew there was going to be death. You knew there was going to be hardship and sorrow and pain and suffering and all that. Lord, every one of us here is either going through a situation or has gone through a situation or is getting ready to go into a situation. All of us here, Lord, have have suffered broken relationships. All of us, Lord, have, have, have felt the pain in our hearts of having sinned against you. The Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for being the God that you are. We praise you for being the Lord, the master, having gone and tasted death for all of us and now been raised, seated at the right hand of the Father. You're just waiting until the time where all enemies come under your feet as your footstool. And Lord, for all of us who know you as Lord and Savior, who've been reconciled to you, we get the privilege of every day walking with you. Every day, no matter what happens, Lord, we're with you. And Lord, you knew what it was like to suffer. And so Lord, as you're with us, you can help us in our times of pain, in our times of suffering, in our times of temptation, that we want to run away, that we want to, we want to give up, we want to stop following you. But Lord, you continue to tell us by your spirit, don't give up, don't, don't walk away. So Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for your word that is true. I thank you for your word that's solid. I thank you for your word that gives us great hope and great encouragement because stuff that's in your word tells us information about you. It's about who you really are. So Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for our time in your word. Lord, help us to take it in. Truly take all this in. Help us, Lord, to live it out.
And now, Lord, as we do uh, have a couple more acts of worship, I pray that these acts of worship will be pleasing in your sight. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here in Jesus' name.